you have a Bible with you this morning, open up to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John in chapter 14. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this amazing Gospel, the Gospel of John. And you've caught us today in a little series we've been doing on the Holy Spirit. And so today we'll be looking at the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, part two, John 14, verses 17 through verse 20. Here's what the Apostle John writes in John 14, starting in verse 17. Jesus is speaking and he says, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me, and I in you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reading of your word this morning. Thank you for directing our hearts towards the words of Christ in this upper room discourse to give us greater understanding of the promise of the Holy Spirit. And I pray as we talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the promise that's made here in these verses, that our hearts would be greatly encouraged and our lives would be radically changed. And I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, amen. Well, during the mighty movements of the Holy Spirit in the Moody Sankey meetings in Dublin, Ireland, the earthly father of C.T. Studd, you might remember C.T. Studd was a missionary, and so his dad was saved at one of those glorious meetings. And he invited, C.T. Studd's dad invited some of his worldly companions to come to his home so that he could tell them the wonderful news. When one wealthy English sportsman arrived at the railway station, he was met there by the coachman, and he could not wait until he got to the house to know what had happened to his old friend. So he began to question the coachman. I hear that something remarkable has happened to your master. I hear he's got religion. Please tell me about it. In what way has Mr. Studd changed? Oh, said the Irish coachman, it's a revolution. In one sense, he is still the same man. He's in the same body. But the best way I can explain him is he's a new man in the old skin. Well, if you're in Christ this morning, that's the way that we ought to be described. You're a new man. You're a new woman. But you're still in the same old skin. Now, we can help you with that skin with some certain uh, creams and lotions, right? But you get what I'm saying. The idea is you're the same on the outside, but the inside is completely changed. Your inner man has been renewed while your outer man stays and looks the same. On the inside, though, you have light and heat. You have joy and you have exhilaration. You have jubilation inside of you because of what Christ has done. And on the outside, you're still in the same body. I mean, the work of the Holy Spirit is intangible. It is invisible. It is in the soul of a man. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit is evident for all to see. The fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, 22, 23, is love. That would be a love for God and a love for others like nothing you've ever known or experienced. You have joy That would be joy unspeakable. Even on a bad day, you have the joy of the Lord because your joy is focused on Christ and not on circumstances. One of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. 
a, a peace with God and a peace with others, a peace in your heart, a peace in your life, a peace that transcends all understanding. You have patience. This would be a, a willingness to wait on God and to wait for His will and His way to be revealed at the proper time. You have kindness. This is the quality of being helpful and beneficial to others. You have goodness. This is a positive and a, a moral quality of being interested in the welfare of others. This is having a morality that opposes evil and is filled with the grace of God. One of the fruits of the Spirit is faithfulness. This is being true to God and being true to His Word with your beliefs and your convictions and with your actions. As a born-again Christian, you ought to be gentle. This is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance, but to be gentle is to be humble and to be courteous and to be kind to others. And then the last fruit of the Spirit mentioned in that familiar passage is self-control. And this is the restraint of one's emotions and impulses and desires that would keep you from the things of the world, but rather help you find your happiness in God and in obeying His Word. And so this is really the effect of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's invisible inside of you, and yet the works of your outer man, as you're controlled by your inner man, start to show these fruits of the Spirit that are evident for all to see. When the Holy Spirit indwells a believer, the Holy Spirit bears fruit. All of these fruits I just mentioned in your life. The Holy Spirit brings about changes, and He brings about results. Like, you can't stay the same. You are a different person. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He sanctifies you, and He satisfies you with His personal and permanent presence in your life. One of the best things about becoming a Christian is that you are never alone. You are never asked or expected to live the Christian life in your own strength. You are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. You are filled with the life-changing power of His presence. You are enabled. You are energized. You are empowered to live a life of victory. You are an overcomer. You are a new creature. You are precious in God's sight. You are loved. You are prayed for. You are a recipient of the grace of God. You are adopted into his family. You are set apart for service. You are prepared for good works. You're equipped for the battle. You're protected from the foe. You are God's prized possession. This is what it means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, we're going to look at a part two of this sermon entitled The Indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Three parts. We looked at the first part yesterday. Let me just give you a quick reminder. I said yesterday, I meant last week, right? But let me just give you a quick reminder of that point. Number one, it's there in your outline. If you're taking notes, you can follow along. But we talked about how the Holy Spirit abides in you. And that first blank we looked at last week was the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Verse seven, even the Spirit of truth. And we talked about how the Holy Spirit teaches you all things, and He gives us the Word of God, and He reminds us of everything that Christ has already shared with us. And then last week, we looked at how the Holy Spirit is unseen by the world. There in 17, it says, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. And we talked about how unbelievers cannot receive the Holy Spirit until you receive Christ first. You first must be born again, and when you're born again, then God's presence indwells you as in the person of the Holy Spirit, and that was the third point last week. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. The end of verse 17, it says, you know him, 
speaking, Jesus speaking to his disciples and inferred there to every believer, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now listen to me. I've said this statement a couple of times, but I want to make sure it sticks. What Jesus is to our salvation, the Holy Spirit is to our sanctification. Jesus came to save us from our sins, and then he was going to leave and send another to sanctify us. It is the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and enables us to walk in his statutes day by day. It is the Holy Spirit that reminds us to be careful to obey all of God's rules. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us and encourages us and cautions us and empowers us to live the victorious Christian life. The Holy Spirit did not work in the same way or to the same degree in the Old Testament. But after the cross, after Jesus came, after Jesus died, After Jesus was raised from the dead, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the Bible helps us understand at Pentecost, we now see the full effect of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Before, in the Old Testament, there was kind of a coming and going of the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible says that Joseph in the Old Testament is a man on whom the Spirit of God, on whom was the Spirit of God in Genesis 4. 41 verse 38. The Spirit of God came upon the 70 elders who prophesied in Numbers 11, 25, and 26. The Spirit of God came upon Balaam in Numbers 24, 2 through 3. The, the Bible says that Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the Spirit of wisdom in Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. Judges 14, 6 says that the Spirit of God rushed upon Samson. The Spirit of God rushed upon King Saul in 1 Samuel 10, 6, and then he departed from Saul in 1 Samuel 16, 14. The Spirit of God stopped being with Saul and instead rushed upon King David in 1 Samuel 16, 18. And it goes on and on. You read in the Old Testament how the Spirit of God shows up, then the Spirit of God departs, and he showed up for a special work at a special time, on a special person to accomplish his purposes. I think the best way to say it is that the Spirit was with the Old Testament saints through community, but would not be in them individually and intimately. Under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit was with believers in a general sense, But in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of you. And he does so personally and permanently. And that's why it says at the end of John 14, 16, that the Holy Spirit will be with you for how long? The end of verse 16, he will be with you forever. It says that he dwells in you and that he will be with you, and he doesn't leave you on a bad day, and he doesn't abandon you through tough times, and he doesn't chide you when you were down. Rather, he comes alongside of you, and he helps you, and he comforts you, and he counsels you, and he prays for you, and he encourages you. In Jesus' statement in John 14, 17, he says, he is with you, and he will be in you. And I really think that what Jesus is doing there is summarizing the statement that we're making. He's with you, in the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament, he says he's going to be in you. He's with you, and yet he's in you. And it's summarizing what we've just examined from the Old and New Testament, the with and the in 
principle. Let me, let me take a moment and share this just a little bit deeper because I want to make sure you got it by showing you a little bit of a comparison of how we see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So that next little sub point there in your outline says D, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Number one, temporary. That's your blank if you are taking notes. I know you're finally saying, finally, I got a blank. I got something I can do. I'm going to fill in my blank. All right, there you go. Temporary presence with Moses. Now we're looking at some examples of how the Holy Spirit came and left, how he came and left. And Moses is a perfect example of that. Moses was also the mediator of the old covenant. It was Moses who God used to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. It was Moses who led them through the wilderness. It was Moses whom God gave the Ten Commandments to on Mount Sinai. It was Moses who received and recorded the law in the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. And this was all done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Moses never did a single thing on his own. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Moses saw God's presence in the burning bush. He experienced God's power in the 10 plagues. And Moses talked with God face to face as a man talks with his friend. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through the end of the chapter. And you'll see what I'm talking about, about the presence of God being with Moses in a unique way, and yet then the presence of God, to some degree, departing from Moses. That's recorded for us here, Exodus 34, 29 and following. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron And all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron, and to the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses's face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, here's an example of Moses going up to Mount Sinai, the holy presence of God, giving him the law, the Ten Commandments, and he would meet with God on the mountain. And when he would come down off the mountain, they would look at him as like, Moses, your face! Like, I can't even hardly look upon your face. It's so shining. It's so radiant. And the presence of God would be with him. And so, Some would ask, well, what's the deal about the veil? Well, many commentators would say that when Moses' face would shine over a course of hours or days, that shining would get less and less, and then people didn't want to necessarily see the presence of God leaving. Like they were excited to see it when they saw it, but they were discouraged when they maybe saw that presence leaving. Moses was in the presence of God, and then he came out, and when he was in the presence of God, again, his face would shine and radiate. 
Um, some people would say that what the Apostle Paul, you know, he mentions this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and the Apostle Paul taught that the veil prevented the people from seeing a fading glory and related it to the inadequacy of the old covenant as well as to the blindness of the Jews of Paul's day. But what we're kind of seeing here is just a little picture of the presence of the Spirit of God that went on Moses and it came off of Moses. There was only a temporary presence. There was not a permanent indwelling of the person of Moses. Now, in the Old Testament, let's look at another aspect of the Holy Spirit's work. We're saying there's a temporary presence of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we know the Holy Spirit is the giver of prophecy and scripture. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and all of the Old Testament prophets. In Ezekiel 11, verse 5, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Say thus, speaks, uh, say, thus says the Lord, so you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that, I've come, that have come into your mind. Just one of many passages where basically God shows up in the Holy Spirit speaking to Ezekiel, one of the prophets. The Spirit of the Lord fell upon him and told him what to write down. And so all of the Old Testament prophets received divine revelation from God by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we talk about divine revelation, we're talking about Scripture, that the, that the God, the Holy Spirit, gave them Scripture divinely revealing to them what it is that He wanted them to know. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16, you know this passage says, all Scripture is breathed out by God, literally the breath of God. And when 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture, what Scripture is He referring to? It's referring primarily to the Old Testament Scripture that the New Testament believers had with them. And I would say it would also cover any New Testament scripture that had been written up to that point. But the point being this, all scriptures breathed out by God. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that gave the Old Testament scripture. The Old Testament was given by the Holy Spirit. They were God-breathed. The scriptures were inspired by God. They were given by the Holy Spirit. And of course, we know also that Jesus is the living word. And so we see in the, in the Old Testament again, we see this temporary presence. We see the fact that the Holy Spirit gave us the word of God and gave divine um, revelation to the prophets. And then number three, the Holy Spirit resides in the tabernacle and in the temple. The Holy Spirit resided in the tabernacle and in the temple. The Holy Spirit resided in the tent of meeting, which was the tabernacle. This was a temporary dwelling, a mobile temple, if you will, until God had Solomon build the Hebrew temple in Jerusalem, which we read about in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and, 13, uh, 10 and 11. It's this amazing scene where King Solomon slaughtered ox after ox and animal after animal, like thousands of them. And they're dedicating the temple to the Lord. And in 1 Kings 8.10, it says, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. We're talking here about the Shekinah glory of God, a special presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in that very temple. And so God's Spirit dwelled in the holy place. He dwelled in the holy of holies. He dwelled in the temple. And these are just some pictures of the Holy Spirit's presence and his work in the Old Testament. He had a temporary presence with Moses. He gave us the Old Testament scriptures, and he dwelled in the temple. 
All right? Now, with that as a foundation, let's compare that with the New Testament presence of the Holy Spirit, and I want you to see some fascinating parallels. All right? Number one, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Number one, there's a permanent presence in Christ, a permanent presence in Christ. If Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant, then Jesus is certainly the mediator of the New Covenant of His blood. And of course, Jesus is far superior to Moses, just as the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. But the point I'm trying to make is that the Spirit of God came and went from Moses, but it rested permanently on Christ. In all reality, we could say Jesus was never really without the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, we do learn about this dwelling of the Holy Spirit on Christ at Christ's baptism, Luke 3.22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. We also see Jesus full of the Spirit in Luke 4, verse 1, it says, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Notice that Jesus was full of the Spirit. Jesus was not half filled. He was completely filled. Jesus didn't have to wait until Pentecost. He already had the Holy Spirit. And then we read in Luke 4 verse 18, Jesus himself says, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. And so what we're seeing here is the Holy Spirit had a temporary dwelling on Moses and all of the Old Testament believers, but it has a permanent dwelling in Christ, and we're going to see, and in all of New Testament believers. That's the comparison contrast that we're doing. The, the Old Testament, number two, was given by the Holy Spirit, but number two in the New Testament, same thing. The giver of prophecy and scripture, that was all the Holy Spirit's work in the New Testament, just like it was in the Old. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit took up a, took up a permanent residence in Christ, not a temporary residence like with Moses. The Holy Spirit gave the Old Testament and the New Testament as the complete revelation of God. We spoke for a while last week if we don't necessarily need more divine revelation, which is why I would take the position that the Holy Spirit doesn't continue to speak to you today outside of Scripture, that when He teaches you something, it's the Word of God, that when He reminds you of something, He's reminding you of what the Word of God says, that we don't add to or take away from the Bible, Revelation says at the end of the book. And so we understand that everything that we need has been provided in the Word of God because the Holy Spirit provides that for us, and all we need for life and godliness is found in the Bible. All right, but now I want you to see number three. Remember how we talked about the presence of the Holy Spirit was like in the temple in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, tabernacle and temple? Well, number three says Christ replaces the temple, the disciples replace Christ, and then you replace the disciples. Let's look at this for a moment. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit no longer dwells in the temple. Do you remember the discussion that Jesus had 
with the woman at the well of Samaria, John chapter 4, and she's arguing about whether or not God should be worshipped on this mountain and that mountain. And when we preached that maybe a year or two ago, I told you, well, the right answer would have been Jerusalem. It was never right to worship, G- to worship God on a different mountain than the one he appointed, which was Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't say that. He just said, you know what, it doesn't really matter about this mountain or that mountain because Jesus is showing us that transition about the worship of God and the presence of God is no longer going to be tied to a building, but it's going to be tied to Christ. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. And so we understand in the New Testament that Jesus is now the place, if you want to identify a place, of which the Spirit of God dwells. In fact, with me, in fact, turn with me back to John 2, John 2, verse 19, and you see it said clearly here by Christ teaching this very fact. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So we're starting to see Jesus is already shifting our thinking about the presence of God is not longer going to be in a building. You know, we understand that that first temple, the one that we read about in 1 Kings 8, was destroyed. The second temple was rebuilt after the exile. It was expanded by King Herod the Great, which, by the way, was not a great Christian all right, but the building continued to prosper 46 years to build. And now Jesus is like, you know, it's not really about that. In fact, if you destroy this temple, what was he talking about? His body, you destroy this temple, God will raise it up in three days, already giving prophecy about his own crucifixion and his resurrection, but also helping us see that he's moving the pinpoint location of the presence of God away from the temple and onto and in his own body. Jesus replaces the temple. Now, not only do we see that, Jesus is saying here that the Father sent me to earth to bring a permanence of his spirit to dwell with mankind. But now I'm leaving, so I'm going to send you another in my stead. I am now commissioning you to represent the presence of God on earth because Jesus is going to be assigning that same presence to now be with the disciples. And so Jesus is now preparing the disciples, encouraging the disciples, and telling the disciples, basically, you need to hang out in the upper room for about 40 days after the ascension until the day of Pentecost. And then we read about Pentecost. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and we see the transitioning happening. Now the presence of God is no longer with a earthly body of Christ on earth because he ascended into heaven, all right? But he's going to be with earthly bodies of those disciples who received the Holy Spirit in a special way at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they, that would be the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we see this transition of Christ being the representation of God's presence on earth. 
to the disciples being the representation of God's Spirit inhabiting them on earth. Here is the Holy Spirit's present in, uh, presence in Christ being transferred to the disciples as the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of them. Let me think about it. Peter was a lost fisherman, and all of a sudden he becomes a powerful preacher. Matthew was a cheating tax collector, and now he's giving out the gospel for free. John, the youngest of the disciples, has the longest ministry writing the book of Revelation in 95 AD. God takes these ordinary men, and he fills them with his spirit, and they do some some amazing, extraordinary things because it's the Holy Spirit that works in them. And let me tell you something, church, the same Holy Spirit that was working in the disciples is now in you. The disciples aren't here anymore. The apostles are dead and gone, but they pass the responsibility of the gospel down to those that they discipled and appointed to be pastors and to be elders and to lead others to Christ. And now we see the Holy Spirit is in you. And if you are in Christ today, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He abides in you. He remains in you. Your heart is his home. What an amazing thought. You're more precious than the Old Testament temple. God's presence dwells in you. Earthen vessel that you are, fallen creature that you are, if you're in Christ, the Shekinah glory of God dwells in you. Now, that, if that's not encouraging, I don't know what could be. And we're reminded that there's a responsibility that we have about encasing, if you will, in our body, the presence of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes it, th that challenge, that responsibility this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Do you not know, do you not know that you are God's temple? and God's Spirit dwells in you. So again, the focus of the presence of the Holy Spirit is no longer being in the Old Testament temple, but rather residing in the New Testament temple, which is you. This truth of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is unbelievable. God is sharing His dividends with you. God is giving you a total makeover. God is giving you power over your enemies and power over sin and power over the devil. And God has given you the most extraordinary gift in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he paid for it by sending his son to die on the cross so that you don't have to, so that you could be raised from the dead, so that you could be born again. And then he sends his spirit to dwell in you. And this ought to be one of the most fantastic Motiva motivations of why we want to avoid sin. As a New Testament believer, you want to avoid sin not just so that you don't feel guilty, not just so that you don't get caught, not just so that something bad doesn't happen to you. We don't sin because you have a new heart, and you have a new power, and you have a new responsibility, and you are to be a steward of the grace of God. And this is why we are called to flee from sexual immorality. I mean, one of the daily sins that many people struggle with is sexual sin. And isn't it interesting that in this context of 1 Corinthians, turn to 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, he's in this immediate context, he's saying that the power for the New Testament believer over sin Yes, even over sexual sin, because that seems to have a special temptation in the heart of a man. 
And we see Old Testament saints fall again and again and again into sexual sin. And then we see somehow in the New Testament, by the grace of God, that doesn't have to happen anymore. It didn't have to happen in the Old Testament, but we see that it did from time to time. But in the New Testament, there seems to be an extra power, an extra spring in your step, an extra expectation and ability that you now have God's Spirit dwelling in you. And so, so many people, again, just connecting this with sexual temptation, so many people are tempted to look at immorality, to think about immorality, and to act out immorality. It happens every day in the life of so many people. But because God has given you the Holy Spirit, you can overcome sexual temptation. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That context is one of fighting sexual sin. He's like, oh, you're struggling with sexual immorality and combining the parts of your body to a prostitute? He's like, may it never be. May it never be. You have the Spirit of God living in you. You're born again. You have power over that. You don't have to succumb to that. You don't have to give in to that. You can have radical transformation. Listen to me. When I meet with young men in my office who struggle over sexual sin, I remind them that you can be completely changed. You can cold turkey go off of and away from all pornography all activity, and every thought by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sick and tired of the church thinking that it's okay to fall into this just a little bit, and just a little bit more, and just one more time. No, 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 no. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and He's changed you, and He's radically filled you with His Spirit, and you're the temple of the living God. And that in itself ought to be enough to say, no more. I'm done with that. I'm dead to that. I'm going to get over that because Christ in me is greater. He is greater. There is hope. You are not to join your body with a prostitute. You're not to do anything sinful with your body because you represent Christ and you belong to him and you are to be familiar with the things of God and you are to be close to God because you belong to God and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not a temple of Zeus, which represents worldly power. You are not the temple of Athena which represents worldly wisdom. You are not the temple of Diana, which represents sensual sin and fertility. No, 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 no. You are not the temple of a mythological God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is your helper. He is your teacher. He is your counselor. He is your encourager. He is your comforter. He keeps you from sin. He empowers you to overcome, and he points you to Christ. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is being filled with the presence of God, and you are to be filled every moment of every day. You are to be focused on the Holy Spirit. You are to be fascinated with the Holy Spirit. Let him change you today. Let him transform you today. Let him saturate you today. The Holy Spirit was involved with the creation of the world, the inspiration of the Bible, and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In the same way, the Holy Spirit was involved in knitting you together in your mother's womb, in regenerating your dead heart, and in shaping you to look more like Jesus Christ. Thank God for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Thank God that His Spirit dwells in you. 
Now, we got to move on to our second point, but I don't want to. I want to spend the rest of my life learning what it means to be indwelt with the Spirit of the living God. We could preach on this every single Sunday, and you would be blessed, and you would be encouraged because we can't get enough of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All right, now let's move on. All right, number, number two, Jesus will never abandon you. I've told you this is a threefold promise that Jesus is giving to his disciples. The first one is that he abides in you. So though he's leaving, he's sending another to abide with you. Hopefully you understand that to a greater degree. The second promise is Jesus will never abandon you. And the sub point of that one says he will not leave you as orphans. You see where it says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans orphans. Remember, we are looking at the night before the crucifixion. We are only 12 to 18 hours before Jesus will be crucified. And in these last words of the upper room discourse, Jesus is telling his disciples right before he goes into custody in the garden of Gethsemane, he's telling them that he will not abandon them. He will not leave them. And as Jesus encourages the disciples that he will ask the Father to send them another helper. He also tells them that he will not leave them as orphans, that it is his will that he would not leave them desolate, that he will not leave them without hope. In fact, the King James Version says here that he will not leave them comfortless. To be an orphan literally means to be deprived of parents. Now think about it. The disciples are spiritual children of Christ, They've been hanging out with him for three years. He's overcome everything in their midst. People would come after him to kill him, and he would just walk right through them and show up in other places. And now all of a sudden, he's like, they're going to get me this time. They're going to take me down. I'm going to die. I'm going to have to leave you. I'm going to be crucified. He's been telling them. But he says, you know what? I'm not going to leave you without a parent, without a spiritual father. You will not be an orphan. To be an orphan can also mean being without aid and the comfort of a close friend. Jesus may leave them temporarily, but he is not leaving them permanently. This is not the presence of God coming and then going. No, no, this time the Spirit of God is there to stay. He stayed in Christ. He's now staying in you, and there's no longer any confusion or the need of further revelation to show me what to do next. He's fulfilled it all. And so he's promising this time, it's not temporary. This is permanent. I am not leaving you. Oh, I'm just going to leave you for a couple of days, and I'm coming right back. And by the way, Jesus had to leave them. Where he's going at this moment was somewhere only he could go. What he's about to do in this moment is something only he could do. And he is not separating himself from the disciples for some selfish desire to get away to some peace and quiet. He's separating himself from the disciples so that he might fulfill the Father's will, so that he might go to the cross, so that he might pay for their sins, so that he could accomplish salvation for all of those in the world that would repent and believe in him. And remember, at the Great Commission, Jesus did say, and behold, I am with you, what? Always. There's no temporary presence of Jesus. There's no such thing as being a temporary Christian. There's no such thing as, well, God was with us during these years of life and ministry, but I kind of feel like Ichabod. Like sometimes I feel like God has abandoned me or he's left me. Listen to me. If that's you this morning, you need to be reminded of this verse that God's presence is here with you. 
He has not left you. In fact, he says, your next blank says, he will come to you. He will not abandon you. He will come to you. The second part of verse 18, I will come to you. And when Jesus says, I will come to you, he is saying, I will return. I will not abandon. I will not forget you. I will not dissolve our relationship. This is not temporary. This is lifelong and for all eternity. And I believe that we could all be encouraged with that principle today because there may be many times in your life when you feel like it. Listen to me, if you're going to be honest, when you feel like Jesus has left you. And let me assure you today, he hasn't. Jesus never leaves his own. Jesus never abandons his own. Jesus always comes back for his own. You say, then why does it sometimes feel like that I'm not hearing from God? Answer, you're not looking or listening in the right place. When you feel like, well, I don't feel like I'm hearing from God. I don't feel like he's with me right now. In that moment, you're not looking in the right place and you're not listening in the right place. Where we're to look and where we're to listen is in the Bible. It is living and active. It always provides comfort and perspective. And if you're looking and listening somewhere else, then you have to understand this morning that God speaks through his word. God is not silent. God is not speechless. God does not go dark. He doesn't go off the grid. He never loses power. He's not like some internet router that you have to reboot. Oh, I don't have any service right now. What's going on with the internet? Let me go out in the garage and unplug that sucker and then plug it back in and hopefully I'll get service again. Come on, you guys know you have to do it like every couple of months, right? And God's never like that. You're never without access to God. There's no candle that you have to light, no generator that you have to start. God is always there because he's there in his word. He's always with you. He's always near you. Get this, he's always in you because of the dwelling, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. His word, again, is living and active. He's all around you. The heavens declare the glories of God. The sky proclaims the work of his hands. In John 14, verse 18, Jesus is proclaiming the resurrection. He says he's going away, but he's coming back. And the only way that he can come back is to be raised from the dead. He's, being, he's going to be raised from that. So this is an encouraging prophecy. I'm, 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 I'm not going to abandon you. I'm coming back. He's already said it in John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. In John 14, verse 28, Jesus makes the same claim. You heard me say, I am going away and I will come to you. So listen, this morning, we should be encouraged today by this truth. We are never to fret. We are never to fear. We are never to feel alone. Jesus will come. Do you hear me? He will come. He's with you, and he's coming back. Some of you may remember that movie. I think it was in the 90s, The Last of the Mohicans. You remember seeing that movie years ago? There's a very memorable scene when the hero of the film has to leave the woman that's falling in love with him. And he has to leave her to go save the world. And there's some Indians chasing them. And they're hiding behind a waterfall. And the hero has to leave his love. And in that moment, he says to her, you be strong. You survive. Stay alive. 
no matter what occurs, I will find you. He says, no matter how far, I will find you. And all the ladies are like, oh, that's so romantic. Because <laughs> it is. It's like a romantic moving moment. And you know what? He does. He comes right back for her. He doesn't abandon her to those Indians that come out, scalp her and kill her. No, he comes back and he saves the woman. And it's an incredible movie in that sense. But I'm just saying infinitely greater. Please hear me. In an infinitely greater, more emotional, beautiful, romantic love is the love that Christ has for you. And he's like, I got to go save the world, but I'm coming back. Stay alive. I'm coming back. No matter how far, no matter what it takes, he's coming back. That's the encouragement that we see here in this passage. And one more point, and we'll be done here. Just see on this outline, he will live and give life in his name. Look at verse 19. It says, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And so he's telling us, basically, he's coming back, he's alive, and he gives life in his name. And if you're here today, and you're in Christ, you can receive that life in the person of the Holy Spirit. If you're here today, and you're not in Christ, then you need this promise. If you're here today, and you don't know Jesus, you need him in your life. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. And the word of God says the wages of our sin is death. We are to be separated from him forever. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. So if you're here today and you're without Christ, I call you to Christ. I'm calling you to repent and to believe and to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that he might take residence up in your heart, that on this day, that in this service, that from this passage, you could say, you know what, I don't have that kind of life. The reason I'm moping around being dogged by my sin is because I don't have Christ in me. When you describe, Adam, the presence of the Holy Spirit, I don't feel that. I don't see that. I don't know that I have that. Then I'm calling you today, come to Christ. Come to him. If you're here today and you're a Christian, it's just this reminder of like, man, God, forgive me for being so self-sufficient. Forgive me for my lack of prayer, my lack of dependence, my lack of understanding. Would you feel me, God? Would you help me to see who you call me? I am your temple. You dwell in my heart. You're, 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 in, you're in my inner man. And that's going to give me power over sin so that maybe you also could respond kind of like they did about that CT stud guy where his dad got saved. You're the same man in the same body, but you have a new presence about you, right? A new spirit in you. You've been transformed. You've been radically changed. That's what it means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these reminders this morning as we just continue to see the glory of God through Scripture, the powerful indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God, we never want to get tired and move past some of the truths that we're looking at this morning. We're amazed to just reflect on the Old Testament presence of God and the gift of the Old Testament Scripture and Moses, who was a phenomenal mediator and servant of yours, and yet we're reminded, God, that, that now your presence dwells in us that through Christ and through the giving of your word and through the giving of your spirit and through the giving of salvation, through repentance and faith, that you fill us, that you indwell us. What a humbling thought. Oh God, how we want to be mindful of the fact that your presence 
Your Holy Spirit dwells in us. May that be the power that we need to overcome sin and temptation, to think biblical thoughts, to trust you, to listen to you, to look to your word, to listen to the Holy Spirit as he illuminates our minds and uses the scripture as the the, the spirit of truth so adequately does, teaching us and reminding us of what we know to be true. And I just pray that you would revive us today. God, that you would cause us to see that we're alive today because of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.